I think she just carved her own mold and, and stood in her own space. And I'm sure that was a huge surprise to the press, to the world in general, that she had her own taste and she was just going to stand by that. Welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast, the show about the visionaries who keep three blocks in Beverly Hills at the forefront of fashion and culture. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. I'm Lynn Winter, your host for this episode. Carolyn Bassett Kennedy was the beautiful fashion PR who married the most eligible bachelor in America, John Kennedy Jr., as fashion was transforming in the 1990s, Carolyn was at the center of the action at Calvin Klein in New York. The couple and Carolyn's sister Lauren then tragically lost their lives when a plane flown by Kennedy crashed into the ocean. Today, Carolyn Bassett Kennedy and her outsized influence on style is being celebrated in a new book, CBK, Carolyn Bassett Kennedy, A Life in Fashion by the British author and fashion creative director Sunita Kumar Nair. On the pages, you find the voices, photographs and drawings of some of the great names in fashion and design. They tell a revealing new story of the rise of an unexpected fashion icon who died too soon yet endures forever young as a muse. I'm delighted to talk about the book with Sunita, who joins me from her home in London. Sunita, welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thank you very much, Lynn. Nice to be with you. Congratulations, Sunita. This is an amazing new book. And it's the first time that you have penned such a passion volume. I'm intrigued to know about your background and how you found yourself in the fashion world. I always loved fashion. I'm sure Many little girls have said that, but I really did. There was the clothes show, which uh, was this little program about going backstage and Selena Scott would introduce it. And I just loved it. And it was it was a real starter into the fashion world. And then when I graduated from university, which wasn't in fashion, um, I decided to take a leap of faith and, and try and work in the industry. So I started off as a, a trainee buyer at Topshop, which was kind of the safe career path that you take when you embark on fashion, and I hated it. <laughs> and so I decided to try the journalism route, and I did some work experience at Dazed and Confused, and Jefferson Hack was the editor-in-chief there. And I just remember literally walking into the office and everyone was sitting around smoking, listening to the Beatles. And we would have these amazing creative meetings where every opinion mattered, whether you were an intern or a director. And it was an incredible formative time for me, actually. And I learned that as a stylist, you go and hunt for the best look. Or if you're a writer, you go and hunt for the best quote and to, to really stand up to your own opinion, uh, you know, whether it was written or visual. Great. And, and how, where and when did you become enamored by Carolyn Bassett Kennedy and, and what captured <laughs> your attention? I wouldn't say I was enamored by her, but she definitely got my attention. I um, saw her first when I was at university. I went 
into a petrol station and she was front cover of a magazine there. She'd just married John. And I remember seeing what she'd worn and 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 kind of felt a little, you know, freeze on, like, wow, who is this? And and what is she wearing? Like it's it's very simple, but it seems so powerful. And then I think five years after her death, um, I was researching for a Louis Vuitton show at the WWD archives. And I just saw all these frayed issues of WWD and there were photographs of her, um, you know, doing the New York social circuit. And she was wearing just beautiful Yoji Yamamoto or Andamula Mista. And, uh, you know, yeah, that, that got me again. And, and I realized when I was looking through those issues that I kind of mirrored um, perhaps a little un- unintentionally um, her looks. I mean, I was living in New York at the time. So I learned that, you know, essential wear in America was kind of the foundation of fashion and uh, that investment pieces were really important. So Carolyn kind of represented all these things. So that's that's where it started. And then 15 years on, probably from that moment, I realized that there wasn't a book on her. Mm. And um, and the rest is kind of history. <laughs> I mean, the book is really about American fashion. I'm curious how that compares to European and British fashion at the time, as was seen on the runways in Paris, Milan and London. And how did Carolyn really promote that? I think American fashion is very based on the kind of sportswear ethic and, you know, essential pieces. Uh, It started off with Claire McArdle in the 1930s, where she had these interchangeable items for the woman on the go. And I think that essence of American fashion does address the woman on the go because um, American women work and they work out and, you know, their mothers and their wives and they have different diverse lives, you know, and Claire kind of addressed this and, and she created washable fabrics and crease-free fabrics and, and and then this kind of progressed onto designers in the 70s and the 80s. And what Carolyn brought was, again, this whole idea of essentials and separates. But she didn't wear that many American designers, if I'm if I'm being honest. You know, there were a lot of Parisian designers that she uh, felt very comfortable with. But it was the way that she wore it that was very American. And she took away all, all the kind of paraphernalia that sometimes European fashion can bring, you know, all this haughtiness about the fashion. And she just made it very accessible, very easy. And I think that was her, you know, American card that she played. The 90s was an interesting period. I mean, there had been this decade of excess in the 80s. Yeah. You know, people were wearing these saturated colors. There were shoulder pads and power suits. Everybody looked like an upside down triangle. But, you know, in the 90s, it was the new world order. And who arrived on the fashion scene then? And can you speak about what was actually happening in that world in 
New York. I know that Fern Malice in your book, the creator of New York Fashion Week, speaks of the Mount Rushmore of fashion. So what was that yeah. and what was going on? So I thought that she said that brilliantly. The Mount Rushmore she's referring to is Donna Karen, Ralph Lauren, and of course, Calvin Klein. And it's not to say that there weren't great American designers before that, because of course there were. There was Holston, Oscar de la Renta, Stephen Burroughs, um, Anne Klein. Really, the Mount Rushmore of fashion made American fashion uh, commercially successful. And this all happened on 7th Avenue in New York. And it was the central hub to their success and to the success of fashion as an industry for America. You know, they would often try to make their clothes within America, which created jobs. Obviously, they had their corporate houses there. So I think, you know, that's why they're kind of considered epic in a way. And and they 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 state their ground for designers to follow. And about that time, Carolyn Bassett entered the world. She was suddenly noticeable. Yeah. And you say that yeah. her personality and, and spirit had as much to do with the sort of iconic status that she has created as, as the clothes that she chose to wear. Who who was she and where did she come from? Well, she originally came from White Plains in New York, which is not as waspy as a origin as most people like to admit to. And then from there, she moved to Greenwich, Connecticut. And she studied at Boston College. Well, I think she studied teaching. And from doing teaching, she decided to uh, pursue a career in fashion. And she worked at a mall where she was kind of plucked by a corporate executive at Calvin Klein. And she was offered, you know, the golden ticket, come to New York, come and work for Calvin. You know, you're not going to say no to that. <laughs> so uh, that was the start of her story with with Calvin Klein and working with them. And some of the contributors in the book or voices that you've included. I mean, Alessandra Benetton speaks about how she was sort of curious about what he calls his Italian sprezzatura, which I think is this yeah. sort of idea of not trying too hard. Can you speak yeah. a little bit about that kind of allure and, and how it was perhaps of its time? This was during sort of her college days going into working at, at the mall that they had uh, met. But I think there is this essence of her that like she'd just thrown the clothes together. And of course, I think if you analyze it more, nobody throws clothes together. You know, there there is definitely that air and there's that grace that a person can um, carry off. But I think she had made it her own and yeah, a lot of friends would say, God, when she would get dressed, it would be like 10 minutes and she was ready to go. So she obviously had finessed this kind of thrown together look. And again, I think that that's the very American part of her that makes her fashion accessible and approachable. You know, it's not like, oh, God, you know, she's wearing designers top to bottom. She she had this this kind of grace that people would feel attuned to her, I think, because she simplified her looks. Yeah. 
And I mean, this golden ticket that you refer to um, took her to New York and she was working there with really some of the most iconic women of the 90s. You know, Kate Moss was transformed by her association with with Calvin Klein. Jennifer Aniston was involved and Friends was blowing up to be one of the most successful sitcoms ever. And Sharon Stone was filming Basic Instinct. So, So what was Carolyn's role at the brand? So she she started off in sales, which is where the executive from Calvin Klein had wanted to place her. But she actually moved from there to celebrity sales, um, which is exactly as you said, she was dealing with high profile clients like Sharon Stone, Diane Sawyer, you know, where you have to be discreet and you have to be, again, approachable and knowledgeable about the brand and she seemed to do really well in that and then I think as her time grew on in Calvin Klein you know Calvin recognized her style and spirit and her taste and um, she kind of moved to PR but she would do castings for shows she would be involved in advertising Mario Sorrenti remembers a time when they were sitting on the floor talking about what the goals were for the advertising. She kind of became the muse within the corporate offices of, oh, well, what does Carolyn think? What does she say? And and she apparently had voted for Kate over another model that was suggested for the advertising. And that was pretty groundbreaking. You know, I think there were, there were different aspects that she had uh, understanding of what was the next cool thing and I think you know of course Calvin knew that himself but I think to have people around you to endorse that sense is is very helpful creatively she was really at the center of this major shift in fashion at Calvin Klein initially How much do you think the sort of requirement to show allegiance to the brand actually informed her looks? And and you actually had said in the book that if anyone dare walk in with painted nails at the powerhouse, it was off with their head. (laughs) (laughs) There was this sort of requirement. So did she really dress for herself or was she dressing for Calvin? Well, I think that that was the magic of it all really because I think she was already a Calvin girl before she joined Calvin I mean that was the reason why she was sort of cherry-picked from the mall she had that look about her of course she was you know a sales assistant so she had to be wearing Calvin it was really interesting speaking to some of her work colleagues because they kind of spoke about it like it was joining a club so you were either a Ralph Lauren guy or girl or a Donna Karen guy or girl and then you were Calvin Klein you know and of course whoever you decided to work for you would you would emulate in in the clothes that you wore or or the people that you hung out with and you know fashion at that time was a little smaller in 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 the sense so people kind of knew each other and and what you wore represented who you worked for you know, and it was an important kind of marketing tool because then the lady on Madison Avenue is like, oh, look, look at that girl, which could be Carolyn wearing that amazing Calvin Klein skirt. You know, I need that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 
I mean, it's interesting. Last week I was in Paris and I found myself gazing at this billboard um, with Kendall Jenner advertising Calvin Klein. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she kind of takes on this real 90s supermodel look somewhere between Kate Moss and Carolyn Bissett Kennedy. Do you think Carolyn still today is an influence on the brand? Oh, for sure. I think... I think it's not necessarily Carolyn per se, but I think that image-making era that Calvin had developed at that time and that was so incredibly successful. You know, I spoke to Fabian Barron, who was the creative director at the time at Calvin Klein, and it was just really interesting to speak to him about that because one advertising that they'd done and it was called CK1 and it was bringing models of all ages and races and and sexualities together and I remember like seeing that at university and being like wow that's just so cool and inclusive and I think they made a very you know Fabian with Calvin Klein and the rest of the creative team uh, Mario Sorrenti and Stephen Meisel they kind of made this benchmark for the brand and it still exists today. You know, that's what you saw on that billboard. It was um, a kind of magical image that worked then and, and still does now. It speaks to the youth now, I think, you know, of that brand and what it represents. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about image making, because I think you've really considered that in the treatment, actually, of the book, because I think that, you know, not only are you sort of immersed in these images, but the paparazzi photos, I think they give you this sense that you, you know, you're there, but you never quite can see everything. And I'm sort of fascinated by that. How how did that all come about? I really wanted to give the reader a kind of bird's eye view of, of this change, creatively speaking, in the sense of the clothing and uh, in terms of the photography. I, when I actually visited the Calvin Klein archives, I saw the 80s rail, which was like, exactly like you said, you know, it was really jewel toned colors that were quite excessive and over the top and synthetic fabrics. And then the shape of the clothes were really geometric. And then when I went to the 90s rail, it was all sort of organic colors and muted tones and natural fabrics and fluid lines. So that's like a major shift when you're looking at the fashion side. And then when you're looking at the photography, um, you know, women were sort of over glamorized in the 80s. And then in the 90s, you either had this kind of old world nostalgia of Peter Lindbergh and Richard Avedon or these maverick photographers like Mark Borthwick and Corinne Day. You know, I spoke to Mark for the book, who kind of made this raw and simplistic images, which is what Mario did with um, Calvin Klein. And then these cinematic photographers like Glenn Luxford, when he did those Prada campaigns, and, and they look like film stills almost, you know. Um, so there's that part which is kind of orchestrated in a studio or in a location and then the setting of Carolyn's world with the paparazzi kind of gives you an idea of of what she was facing as a famous 90s woman at the time. I was also very keen to balance the paparazzi photos with the beautiful photography mm. that was happening at that time and that was 
it's a huge influence even today, these extraordinary indelible images, you know, that these creatives had made during the 90s. Mm. Fascinating. I mean, you talk about this sort of glamorization of women in, in the 80s, but, you know, in the 90s, I mean, in the case of, of Carolyn, I mean, she had been very connected to sort of Boston and the East Coast, where this preppy look was very de rigueur. And it, I think, also signaled a certain maybe social and intellectual status, not dissimilar to the sort of BCBG look in France or the Sloan Ranger looks in England. Do you think that was the sort of foundation for her style? Because it was it was kind of tomboyish. It wasn't really feminine. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a tomboy element to the way that she dressed. You know, it, I think it started when she was a student. You know, friends would report, oh, she would just wear hockey shirts or sweatpants or a white shirt and sweatpants. And then her days at Calvin Klein were a mixture of sort of menswear jumpers and shirts with leggings and loafers or a blazer. But, you know, I loved that side to her that there's this kind of dichotomy in her clothing where she plays on the masculine and the feminine. I think it's also very disarming and, and seductive as well when a woman does that. And, you know, she didn't kind of defeminize herself by embracing kind of tomboy elements in her clothing um i think she just gave her own interpretation to it and um and she she dressed for herself i think that's a very very interesting side to the way that carolyn would put things together especially in her sort of casual and off-duty looks you know I mean, she certainly provoked enough to be noticed by John Kennedy Jr., mm -hmm. son of President Kennedy and First Lady Jackie Kennedy. And I think, you know, they met, as I understand, around 1994, which was actually the year that Jackie died, which I find fascinating, mm -hmm. actually. And it was a life-changing romance, you know, a very private wedding and a, and a public marriage ensued and really threw her into the public eye and, you know, as sort of prey to the paparazzi. Mm -hmm. How do you think her involvement with John impacted her style? Because you reference a sort of pre and post John look. Can can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? The pre and post John is, is kind of in reference to her hair, actually. I thought it was really endearing that most of the friends I spoke to would always in some contexts, reference her hair. And I felt like that was just a very indicate, you know, a kind of uh, outer indicator of maybe what was going on with her. And the uh, pre-John was, you know, uh, sort of, she wasn't so blonde and it was quite curly, but long hair, very carefree. And she would either dry it in the subway, like stick a pencil through her hair and dry it, you know, as she was on her way to work and then she would let it go. And and then I think when she married John, as she did with her fashion, she sort of polished things up a bit, uh, knowing that she's marrying into a very well-known dynasty and uh, one that has uh, a sort of prescription of being very fashion forward uh, with some of the members there, like Jackie Kennedy. And I think, yeah, it's it's the smart thing to do, right? To, to elevate your look and think, okay, well, 
this worked during that period of my life and and this is my new chapter so how am I gonna change it up in a way that feels comfortable mm. for her I mean their wedding was very private yeah in a candlelit chapel on the remote island of Cumberland in Georgia. But nevertheless, her dress was captured on film and is now, you know, known the world over. Who designed the dress and what did it really signify and contribute to dressmaking and design? I think it was considered a real groundbreaking piece in the sense that there were plenty of slip dresses on the runway in the 90s but for someone to actually make it her bridal dress and that too it's not just you know your local wedding down the corner you know this is this is a global stage she's marrying John F Kennedy Jr and I think it was really gutsy and she knew what she wanted by all accounts she had this idea in her mind Uh, Narciso Rodriguez, who she had known during her Calvin Klein days, was a trusted friend. And yeah, between them both, I think they created this just beautiful, stunning dress that women today still talk about. You know, I think we can we can even think about, I think Meghan Markle had said that it was her everything goals dress, you know. So it's, yeah, it was groundbreaking at the time. And I think even today, women look to it as inspiration for uh, a different kind of dress and a different kind of bride. It was fascinating, Sunny, that it seemed at the beginning of the book that she really didn't have very much money and that she and her colleagues in New York were, you know, living in these sort of East Village apartments, climbing over sort of drunks to get into their apartment and, you know, shopping in thrift stores. And then suddenly she was propelled into a very sort of wealthy lifestyle. She was very much a working woman and and friends always speak of that actually from her college days she was funding her own education and she would do side jobs and uh, she she had a really amazing work ethic and of course when she married uh, John Kennedy Jr exactly as you said she was propelled into this extraordinary family that was very wealthy and very very famous and not only that but your mother-in-law is is Jackie Kennedy and and you're inheriting some of her jewelry and she was given incredible pieces that uh, friends have said she just didn't either wear or she wasn't really sure what to do with them and I thought that was just really really quite sweet actually and quite innocent in that wow like most people would just go to town if if they were they were married to someone like John Kennedy in terms of wealth and and wearing jewelry but but she she kind of kept true to herself and true to her dressing ethic and again i i i just think that's just a really interesting facet of her as a woman that she wasn't moved to follow the herd and and to wear clothing or jewelry uh, that was expected of her you know suddenly she she should be wearing perhaps Dior or Yves Saint Laurent uh, but instead she chose to wear Yoji Yamamoto and Andamula Mista 
and Jill Sander and uh, and yeah, I think the only uh, piece of jewelry that she would wear often was Jackie's Cartier tank. Fascinating. And I mean, obviously, after the marriage, she was fully in the spotlight. And you, you, you write a lot about how Carolyn's looks were her armor and how she may have adapted her looks to deflect attention to and maybe avoid critique. Can you tell us a little bit about how that played out? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I started doing the book, you know, this is sort of 20 years on from when she had died. So there were a lot of rumors that were true, possibly, or not true. And this this suggestion that she wore certain looks to deflect attention kind of came from one or two sources that 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 weren't kind of matching up or marrying up and i think yes to an element she wasn't fame hungry and wasn't dying for 20 photographers to photograph her every move but i think also she was a fashion woman she knew what she was wearing. She was intelligent. And I think she knew what worked on her and what didn't. And and I think she delivered that in a in a very concise and intentional way. She had some, you know, sort of confidants at the time. I mean, it must have been a very challenging moment. Lee Radswell, her aunt by marriage, younger sister of Jackie Kennedy appears in the book as a sort of mentor and confident. And she was also, like Carolyn, a PR specialist. Yeah. Do you think that Lee, you know, what do you think Lee provided to her? And did she impart a sort of, you know, fashion advice? Oh, yeah. I mean, she she also had spoken to Carolyn about, you know, this armor concept and and to to kind of guard what you want to guard and allow what you want to allow for the outside world through your fashion. And, you know, no one would know better than Lee what Carolyn was going through. And with no Jackie there, I think that was just a really lovely way to have a style guardian by your side, you know. And um, when I saw some pictures of them together, you could see that there was some kind of very... um, motherly rapport there you know and uh, and it must have been a relief for Carolyn I'm sure to have that kind of mentorship and and confidant yeah I mean the story reminds me very much of Princess Diana you include a picture actually of Diana and Carolyn together and I'm curious what your thoughts are about bringing those two narratives together and what you want to say to all those women that are pursued by the media I mean, when I saw that picture of them together, and again, a lot of friends had made uh, comparisons with Princess Diana and Carolyn. You know, they both had this amazing grace and style and allure. They both died very, very young and, and tragically. But I think also they were vulnerable women in certain ways, in the ways that they had to deal with the excessive press attention and most of which was pretty negative and that picture just puts them in a time capsule you know of two women one British one American but they're sharing very similar life experiences and I thought it was really interesting in my research of course I I don't really remember that time 
um, I was just a student really and a lot of women who were successful and on a global stage like Hillary Clinton, Courtney Love. I mean, I think even Britney Spears alludes to it in her new memoir that the questions that were asked to her were radically different to the questions that Justin Timberlake received. You know, hers were about her breasts and body weight and were highly personal. And I think there was this very disparate treatment of women in the press, in the media. They were always labeled as, you know, uh, this kind of like 90s bitch uh, stamp that they were given. And um, I think it was a really tough time. We we saw Princess Diana go through that. Carolyn definitely did. Mm. And it, it was, it was, yeah, it was women at the stakes, which must have been pretty, pretty scary for them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, her mother in law, Jackie Kennedy, you know, was also center stage. Yeah. How much do you think, you know, the sort of influence of Jackie played out in her life? Or was it more to do with being part of one of America's most prominent families and the expectations that that demanded? I mean, what do you think really kind of drove her in terms of what how she presented herself I think you know Carolyn was a PR a very seasoned PR so when she married John I'm sure she knew that there were considerations that she would have to take into account uh, not only with the way that she dressed but the way that she conducted herself the way that she was seen by the press and I think there also was this obvious comparison to Jackie Kennedy. And I thought it was very uh, brave and very confident of her to not fall into the trap of trying to emulate her in any way, uh, to not wear, you know, sentimental jewelry of Jackie. So people would be like, oh, she's so like her. I think she just carved her own mold and, and stood in her own space. And yeah, I'm sure that was a huge surprise to the press, to the world in general, that uh, she had her own uh, taste and and she was just going to stand by that. Yeah, I mean, she really cr- became this sort of standard bearer for minimalism. But it's interesting because in, you know, certainly in art, minimalism is really like a removal of expressionism. And I know that she sort of didn't engage with the press and was a very private person. Um, I just wanted you to sort of take us through, you know, what that look was, because it's so fascinating how in the book you've, you know, journeyed through these different elements of her style. And, you know, I know you started with the shirt, which is sort of fascinating because I think at one point she described it as straightforward, but she didn't look straightforward in it. Um, <laughs> tell us more. I think I think this is this is the beguiling and enigmatic part of Carolyn. You know, it's kind of looking at those um, magic uh, visual puzzles. You know, or those optic puzzles that you you see something beyond what is actually there. I mean, yeah, the shirt is a straightforward piece but it was how she styled it it's how she made it her own 
you know, she would cuff the sleeves or she would tie it at, uh, you know, uh, opposite ends or, or she would leave it out. And, and, and friends would go into quite detail and they were obviously observing how she was, you know, making the shirt hers. So yeah, it, it's in essence a very simple piece, but it was the way that she made it hers that I think was just a genius part of her styling and her fashion sensibilities. And I mean, the color palette that she chose was very minimal. It was sort of black, white, yeah. beige, maybe a bit of red, but which is actually very like minimalist art of the 60s, actually, rather than the 90s. But I'm just curious about that sort of muted color palette. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at the the art side and of course that's your that's your metier but I think when you think about Donald Judd and Agnes Martin and Frank Stella there's a kind of discipline to sticking to certain strict rules and from that discipline form is created and I think there's a lot of parallels when you look at fashion and minimal fashion because there's a discipline in taking the shirt, for example, and, you know, turning up the collar or taking note of the fit or styling it in a very certain way and not over-accessorizing it and leaving the mastery of the design to speak for itself. You know, these are just really important aspects of minimalism and and of course the only way you can appreciate form is by the strictness of a color palette and so black white beige touches of red are are accessories in a way to um the designs yeah and you speak about the way she shopped as well that she would often buy you know, the same thing in different colors. So was was she creating a sort of uniform? I think so. I think when you're thinking about minimalism as a subject, that there are certain rules that you have, right? And I think for her, she certainly had her rules. She had her her blue jeans, her white t-shirt, her shirt, her coat. And I thought it was really interesting when I spoke to Andamula Meester about it because she said she has a uniform that she's found the perfect pair of pants. And so why on earth would she have a different pant? You know, and so she has five of the same. And when she's found the perfect shirt, she has five of the same. I think there is an element to Carolyn's uh, wardrobe, which was very uniform. And I think she was just very smart in, in... noticing form and cut and if something worked for her and it made sense say a t-shirt she would buy it multiple times and she would also go to the same designers over and over again you know she pretty much wore Manolo Blahnik for shoes or she would go to Prada for coats so she had a kind of mental uniform for sure. Yeah I mean very interesting in comparison to that discipline you know, in, in, in around 1995, I, I understand. So John had started George magazine. And I read that she 
had to make sure that she wouldn't wear one designer over the other in case they were advertising in the magazine. So in fact, she chose to wear Yoji Yamamoto because he wasn't an advertiser. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's fascinating. And of course, Yoji is completely different from, in, well, in my opinion, from a sort of minimalist approach. I mean, he was designing things from the back, not the front, you know, women's clothes, men's clothes for women. So it was a very different thing. Can you talk a little bit about how this interest and sort of commitment to Mr. Yamamoto began? Well, the first question I can I can directly answer is uh, an incorrect source she wasn't forced to wear Yoji Yamamoto. Uh, in fact, her good friend Hamilton had said, you know, after she passed and he heard this rumor over and over again, you know, he said it just felt really lousy and and that there was some kind of contriving uh, plot going on. Um, once again, I think when Carolyn loved something or she felt an affinity to it, she was all in, you know, and and she felt very much um, like that about Yoji Yamamoto and his designs. She would literally coo on the fit and the way that it would sit on her body and the way that it made her feel. You know, we spoke about the armor mentality and I think she felt very protected by Yoji's designs and 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 Mr. Yamamoto's an incredible feminist, which I just love. And he is all about empowering the woman and making them feel like, you know, the strong, intelligent woman that they should feel when they're wearing his designs. And I'm pretty sure that's that's why Carolyn was hooked with, with wearing him. Yeah, and you know? I mean, Prada at the time was also completely everybody was interested in Prada in the 90s it suddenly emerged from from nowhere so I you know I'm curious about sort of that as well well Prada was was kind of the perhaps an extension of minimalism but but more of on the European side and I think again Muchia speaks about how you, she wanted to celebrate women dressing for themselves and women not dressing for men and how she wanted to make the coat uh, one of her favorite pieces as opposed to a dress, for example. And Carolyn wore a lot of Prada coats. And you can see that this is a kind of outer extension, again, of herself when she's in and about New York City and you know she's buttoning them up properly and she's belting them up she's really appreciating the design and form of each piece that she wears and I think that again just shows her natural love for for what she's wearing. Yeah I mean you you, you mentioned that she was wearing Manolo Blahnik shoes you know mainly um, but there were other accessories as well, fascinating, sort of her approach to bags and sunglasses and the headband. Can you talk a little bit about the bags? They were just so beautifully put together with her with her looks. So I think she had quite, obviously her day, day bags were very uh, utilitarian. And it's, again, for a working woman, 
even Edward Ennen Falls speaks about her Birkin bag, which is stuffed with her, you know, workout gear and Bilofax and all sorts of uh, paraphernalia. And then, you know, in addition to the Manolos, there were the sneakers that appeared. And I mean, (laughs) that was a new thing. It was happening everywhere. And you interviewed Stan Smith for the book, right? Yeah, I thought it would be really interesting to bring someone like Stan in because, I mean, he's had such a fantastic career, not only as a tennis player, but as a brand ambassador. He's had one of the longest standing ambassadorships uh, that a sportsman has probably had. I could be wrong, but I, I know he's been with Adidas for a long time. And it was just really fascinating speaking to him to to see how the crossover happened from the shoe, which was just a performance shoe. And, and he won some Grand Slam matches with the shoe um, to it being part of a lifestyle and Carolyn wore Stan Smith there's pictures of her wearing them in and about Hyannis Port and there was definitely some traction around that time of people wearing this sneaker in their day-to-day and I think it was the beginning of what we're experiencing now and which of course has changed so extraordinarily you know so yeah it was it was really interesting to to backtrack on that and and source where this this change was happening and on a on a cultural level yeah absolutely and i mean going from sort of casual to more elegant scenarios one of the most elegant looks in the book i think was the white coat dress by Versace that she wore for the 1998 Fire and Ice Ball in Los Angeles. And she looks amazing in the photographs. Um, Can you tell us more about that look and how it came together? Yeah, well, this was a haute couture look for Versace. And we got to speak to the designer about it. And of course, when it's haute couture, there is... uh, an extraordinary level when it comes to design, fabrication. And he was explaining that the fabric had to be milled in these kind of white rooms and the workers have to wear hazmat suits to make sure that they don't contaminate the yarn because if there's just a speck of small dust, the whole reel is ruined. And the look uh, comes from, it's a mixture of voters from Greenland and what they wore uh, and uh, kind of the motorcycle uh, biker jackets. So you get this really fabulous dress that's kind of made with this scooped boat neck, which is the Greenland reference. And then you get the the motorcycle reference which is the long zipper running uh all the way down from the top to the bottom of the dress in this just beautiful fabric and uh she joked to the reporter that she was poured into it uh for the fire and ice ball it was again one of those dresses that is still used uh today and you see you see replicas of it to this day you know yeah, and I think with her 
white blonde hair and that long white dress and the red lip, an amazing look. Yeah. And she just had this way of carrying off very simple looks and just let the clothes do the talking. And I think that's an incredible confidence. Yeah. So they were in L.A. for the Fire and Ice Ball. How did L.A. play into their lives? I know that they obviously had family in California, among them Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maria Shriver, who we see in the book at the at the ball with Carolyn. Do you think Hollywood and the entertainment industry influenced her style in any way? I don't think it. I don't think it directly influenced her, but I know that they would go to LA very often um, because of George, the magazine, and that they would have a lot of shoots there. I know that she enjoyed, um, you know, LA life as New Yorkers always do. Um, it's, I, I think when we're looking at it style-wise, I think she's very much the quintessential New Yorker. In fact, there's a a shot of her, which I couldn't include in the book, sadly, because I couldn't source the photographer. But she's wearing a white shirt and black trousers and Haviana flip-flops. And the L.A. sun is beating down on her. But, you know, the kind of only concession she makes to her usual uniform are the flip-flops and, you know, to the sun. So I think they as a couple enjoyed LA and it was a essential component to their life and formulating George the magazine. Yeah and I mean you know tragically less than a year later they passed away so very yeah. tragic story. I mean you couldn't really dream up a more compelling and, and heartbreaking story it has all the, the characters society politics glamour romance and tragedy you know a real american dream curtailed that you know i think people around the world continue to lament what was your real goal with the book and and do you think she would have wanted the visibility she was a very private woman and i knew that when i started this book and it was always a sort of uh in a in a conflict with me to 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 honor that side of Carolyn, to honor her privacy, and I was very careful when I interviewed people that the subject was about her fashion and it was about her life in fashion. Uh, a friend had joked and said, "Oh, you know, she would think it was really hysterical that there's a book on her, you know, because she was essentially pretty low key." But I think there there is just this demand for her because the fact that she did eschew fame and she didn't really rank it as the most important thing in her life, I think that is a that is a draw and a magnet for people still today, that there's, there's a dignity in the way that she lived. And I think it's inspiring for people who didn't grow up with her and, and don't know her to, to pick up a book and, and discover her and her world. I think Catherine Holstein, the founder and creative director of Kate, really summarizes it very eloquently. And she also draws parallels between Carolyn and Kurt Cobain, which I think is kind of fascinating. It is. I think when young lives are, are lost, and I think especially when it's 
promising, bright young lives that is very aspirational and that the American people felt uh, drawn to uh, is cut so suddenly. There is this moment where they do become iconic and I think it's the closest we get to, to immortality as humans because they don't, they are forever young, right? And they are uh, forever beautiful and they don't age and they don't deteriorate. And it's, of course, completely tragic for the loved ones who are left behind. But I think from a cultural point of view, a pop culture point of view, what Catherine said is true. You know, it's it's just beguiling when young life is cut so short because I think you can either write the remainder of the story for them or you can get transformed into their world for that brief time. Yeah. And I mean, you draw some optimism from this very sad story. You dedicate the book really to students of the future. And you say in your book, create responsibly, the future is with you you know, which is great. And I just wanted to understand a little bit about how Carolyn sort of plays into that manifesto and how she can be an example of how that might play out. I think going back to her wanting to be a teacher and, you know, she, I hear, I heard a lot about her love of children and their natural uh, link with her And uh, when I was thinking about doing the book, I actually spoke to a friend who is a lead lecturer at Central St. Martin's for women's wear design. And uh, she said every year without fail, there's at least one student who, who references her as inspiration. And, you know, I love libraries. I love uh, university libraries, especially fashion, art and design libraries. And it was just the thought of having a book on Carolyn for them to reference and to also maybe think about the way that she lived. She didn't have tons of clothes and I don't think she was excessive in any way. And I think the sustainable aspect and living with a conscious Uh, approach to buying and wearing clothes and of course designing is is really important and and that's why I left that message for the future. Well I mean the book is a beautiful and generous celebration of a, a rare and remarkable woman who seemingly had a mind of her own and despite her very public life maintained just enough mystery to seduce those around her and obviously continues to do so. So thank you so much, Sunita. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you for having me and, and of course, to Rodeo Drive as well. It's a pleasure. Sunita Kumar Nair has contributed to leading publications, including Sunday Times Style, Women's Wear Daily. She was on the masthead of W Magazine in New York and worked alongside the elite in fashion for nearly two decades. CBK, Carolyn Bassett Kennedy, A Life in Fashion, is a must-read and a testament to her discerning taste and vision. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the Heyman family. To Rodeo Drive, Beverly Wilshire, a Four Seasons Hotel, 
and the Beverly Hills Conference and Visitors Bureau. This episode was hosted by Lynn Winter. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. Join us on Instagram at Rodeo Drive.